Welcome to Faith Sermons and Studies with Pastor Joe DeVitro. Let's take our Bible and open up to the book of Jude. And uh, we're going to look at just two verses again this week. Next week we'll take a bigger jump, but we're going to look at just two verses. But before we get into the, the verses this morning, I want to remind you of something that happened in Americana history, okay? Uh, how many of you remember a guy named Yogi Berra? Catcher for the New York Yankees, right? One of the pinstripe warriors. How many of you guys remember the name Hank Aaron? Okay? Home run hitter, right? Known for his bat. Well, one year in the World Series, the Milwaukee Braves are going against the New York Yankees. And the Milwaukee Braves have as their main guy, Hank Aaron. The Yankees have, among others, Yogi Berra. Hank Aaron comes up to bat in the World Series, and Yogi Berra is known for um, talking trash to his players or encouragement to his players and trash to the batters, okay? If you know what trash is, it means he kind of tried to distract them from what they're up there to do. And, and during the World Series, Yogi Berra and Hank Aaron are going back and forth with each other. And finally, Yogi Berra kind of thinks he's got the thing that he's going to get over on Hank Aaron. And Hank Aaron comes up to bat, and he's got his Louisville slugger in his hand, and the label of the bat is facing the pitcher. Yogi Berra looks up from his stance and says, Hey, Hank, you're holding your bat wrong. You know, if you were a great hitter, you would know that the label faces you, not the pitcher. Hank Aaron looks back at Yogi, looks back at the pitcher, steps into the box and doesn't say a word. The crowd is cheering. The Milwaukee Braves are, are trailing by a little bit here. And Hank Aaron's got men on base. And Hank steps into the batter's box and he scuffs one shoe, scuffs the other shoe. He takes his stance and places that label straight at the pitcher. And Yogi repeats himself one more time. Hank, if you really are a great hitter, you know how to hold your bat. Hank gives one last glance to Yogi, looks back at the pitcher, takes the pitch, makes contact with it, and it goes over the left field wall. Yogi, uh, Hank Aaron takes his bat, simply drops it at home plate, and takes off trotting to first base. He runs to first, never looks at Yogi. Runs to second, never looks at Yogi. Goes to third, doesn't make eye contact with Yogi. The whole run home, he's looking at the ground, he walks up, he makes a statement on home plate. He looks Yogi in the eyes and he says, Yogi, I'm here to hit, not talk. And Hank Aaron walks off to the dugout. Yogi has to kneel down and take the next pitch. And Hank Aaron made a statement that declared the mission for which he was there. I'm here to hit the ball, not to talk about it. And you know what? This morning, Jude is kind of coming into, um, into our arena this morning or into our stadium, into our attention this morning. And he's going to be the same way. There's not going to be any small talk. He's going to get right to the point. And, and Jude is coming in hot. He's not going to talk about it. He's just going to hit the ball. And many times when we come to a New Testament book, we'll read in the New Testament book, there'll be this greeting, this salutation. Then there's this prayer. I pray for the saints daily uh, and encouragement. And Jude says this in his opener. He says, at a time where I would like to write to you about something we all know about, I instead need to encourage you to do something. I'm pleading with you to do something. 
rather than tell them about the great prayer life or about the great ministry they're having or how the church has grown spiritually, he feels the urgency to get right to the point. Just like Hank Aaron was there for the point. He was there to hit the ball and hit the ball he did. Yogi was there to catch, but then he also had extracurricular missions. Jude is laser focused. I remind you about the background here. Usually, um, usually the writers took a little while to get to the truth they wanted to share with the church. You look at Paul's writings, you look at Peter's writings, you look at James, you look at some of the other writers in the New Testament. They took their time getting into this, but Jude jumps right in. Look what it says in verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude jumps right out here in the open and he says this. Number one, defend truth earnestly. We as Christians today need to earnestly contend for the faith. Now, that doesn't mean we walk around slapping people with our Bibles. It doesn't mean that we, we walk around and um, you know promote, I'm okay, you're okay. No, this means this. When you hear something that's wrong, you speak truth. Defend truth. Is truth worthy to be defended? Yeah. If truth is truth, then this fact is true. It will be true in all cultures, at all times, in all places, with all people. Is it ever right to lie? You say, well, what about white lies versus... Is it right to lie? Where do lies come from? Who's the father of lies? Satan is. So you know, really, it's never right for us to lie. Now, when is it good to honor the Lord? Right? When is it good to rejoice in the Lord? Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. It never goes out of style, regardless of what culture, time, people, group, or nation you're talking about. Truth is truth, regardless of where it is. When is it right to kill somebody? To get vengeance. Never. You know, it's never right. It's never justified. Um, and, and we could go on and on with truth. We could take the Ten Commandments. In what culture, in what time, in what place are the Ten Commandments not truth? It's always truth. And God's word is truth to us today. His word is truth. And Jude is earnestly challenging us to stand up for what's right and what's true. Now, there's a difference between man's truth and God's truth, right? Man today defines truth as, well, truth is whatever I deem it to be at a specific time and place. God's truth is true all the time, everywhere, every place, every nation, every people. So he says this, I I appeal to you, I'm writing to you, I'm appealing to you, burdened or passionate, or I'm exhorting to you, that means to come along, alongside to inspire you to do something. So Judah's writing to inspire the listeners, the receivers of his letter, to actually do something. This is a call to movement, a call to action. And in the Greek, it's all in the present tense. It's all linear here. It's all right now, today, here where you stand. We want you to be doing something. And what's he want? He says, beloved. He's talking to believers. Although I was very eager, I was very passionate to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing or burdened or passionate 
to you to contend for the faith. Now it's interesting here, the, the way that, that he uses tenses and mood and voice in the grammar, and I'm not going to get into all that with you. You could study this for yourself if you want to, but I'm going to give you the keys, okay, to help you unlock the passage. The word that is translated contend here is a word which is used in the athletic games, the Greek games specifically. And it was the word that was used for a runner who was running as hard as he could, but he's about to get past at the finish line. So what's the runner do? He agonizes a little more. He gives a little more. You know, what do we call that in cross country today? He needs that last kick, right? We talk about that last kick. Extend your stride a little more. Get a little more kick. Give it a little more energy. And Jude is using this word, epongzomai, to push, to contend, to eagerly move forward, to strive like an athlete reaching for the finish line and competing in the games. He says, I'm earnestly coming to you with an urgency that is there that you stretch yourself a little more when it comes to contending for the faith. This is the word where we get in the past tense the word agonize. He agonized over the situation or the agony of defeat, you know, where it talks about they gave their all and still lost. This is what this word means. They gave everything. He says, give everything in contending for the faith. He wants them boldly to stand firm. We see this form of word in some other place in the Bible. Mark 3.17, we find it in a description of two men. And uh, it's interesting. It says, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, that is, the sons of... You guys have heard that noise before, haven't you? The word thunder there is the same word to agonize, to strive, to push. There was a bang that came with them. An explosion of energy is the idea here. Uh, it's also used in Jeremiah. A form of this word is used in Jeremiah chapter 20 and verse 9. It says this there. It says, I will not mention him or speak any more his name. There is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire there's a burning fire shut up in my bones and i'm weary with holding it in and i can't so the idea here is this that we as believers of christ who have the common salvation of jesus christ should be burdened burning within us having it thunder inside our soul to contend for the faith now that's what we see today in church don't we that's what we see in Christians today, right? The urgency, the thundering, the burning within us to get the gospel out and to tell truth. You know, the truth is today, many are far less passionate about truth and the things of the kingdom than we really ought to be. You see, we have a ho-hum attitude sometimes about it all. If the church grows, it grows. If I witness, I witness. If we have a Sunday school teacher, then we have a Sunday school teacher. We have a greeter, then we have a greeter. No big deal. Sometimes we need to act actually like we care. Sometimes we need a little thunder and a little burning in our blood to get us going again, to rekindle the fire that was once there. And Jude is sensing as early as the first generation church, a burning out when it comes to the things 
of God and contending for truth and teaching people truth. In order to contend for truth, what must you already have? Truth. Not just exposed to it, but you've got to be able to articulate it. And Jude is calling believers in the early church that the time is already now to contend for the faith because there's already false teachers teaching things that aren't true. And who's going to correct that? Who's going to fix that? And if we passively sit back and just sit on our salvation like, hey, I got my fire insurance, I'm good to go, and we don't contend for the faith, then we're not doing what God's called us to do. That's what Jude is saying here. That's what the Word of God is saying. Let's, let's read it together. Let's look at the context of this point. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, a brother of James, to those who are called, believers, beloved in God, in the Father of our, and kept in the Lord Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, love be multiplied to you so that when you come together and I write to you concerning this common salvation that we have, and I want to write that to you, Instead, I'm finding it necessary to tell you that that we're in a spiritual battle. There's a spiritual war going on. And you need to contend for the faith. You need to agonize. You need to burn within you. You need to thunder truth today. Truth matters. People's eternities are lying, hanging in our grasp to grab them from the flame. Has defending our faith ever cost us anything? Have we ever labored over a passage to know what it actually means and what it really says? Have we ever faced our our co-workers, our boss, our spouse, family, neighbors with an unpopular stand when it comes to standing for the truth? We live in a time where we don't want to hear truth. We want to substitute truth for whatever we want it to be. Whatever we feel like it should be. And you know what happened in the days of Noah? The same thing. You know what's happened throughout history? The same thing. Man is always desirous to redefine what truth is so that we can live how we want to live and be our own God. And God says, that's not how it works. I'm God. I declare what truth is and I gave it to you to give to others. Truth does matter and eternities do hang in the balance when it comes to spiritual things. Jude places the word faith at the end of the sentence here and he emphasizes it in doing so. He says, I want you to earnestly contend for, and notice the word, the faith. Not just for faith, but the faith. There there is a differentiation here when it comes to understanding what we're actually promoting, what we're actually speaking about. He says we're contending for the faith. And uh, James places it there for emphasis. And it's a unique verse in the Bible regarding the faith. There are several statements throughout Scripture that imply certain creeds and formulations of doctrine that were codified, at least even in the early church. In other words, there was already a systematic theology in Bible times that was already formed that people would learn. And here they're promoting doctrine. James or Jude is promoting doctrine and saying, hey, Doctrine matters, people. We can't just believe whatever we want to believe because it's the vogue thing. Doctrine matters. And doctrine doesn't have to be boring. Listen to what some of the Bible says here. Uh, Let's go to Galatians chapter 1 and verse 9. And um, 
It says this, as we have said before, and so now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be what? Let him be accursed. Let him be as if he wasn't saved. Let him be declared a false teacher. Um, What does this verse tell us? There were other gospels being promoted at the time the real gospel was. There was a true gospel and there was a not true gospel being propagated in the city of Galatia. 2 Timothy 1.14. Check this verse out. Watch what it says. It says, By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. What is the good deposit? It's the gospel. If the Holy Spirit's indwelling somebody, what is the deposit that was put there in order to get the Holy Spirit? The gospel. It's the truth of the gospel. How about John 1, 9 through 11? Let's look at this passage of scripture and see if this one has anything different to say. It says, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ. What does the teaching of Christ mean? The gospel. And does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. So if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching... Do not receive them into your house or give them any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. What does that verse tell us? Or these verses tell us? There was a codified system of knowledge when it came to the gospel. There there was a codification of doctrine already. The truth was already there. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 3. Check this out. For I delivered to you as first of all importance that what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with what? The Scriptures. So here Paul is telling the Corinthian church that Christ died according to what the Scriptures already said he would do. There's a system of belief that's already established in the early church. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 15. Paul's writing to Timothy. He says this, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost or chief. I'm the worst of them. How many view Paul as the worst of sinners? Most of us view him as what? One of the greatest Christians who ever lived. One of the greatest believers that ever lived. So, Over and over again, we see a system of belief here being referred to in Scripture. So, unfortunately today, we have gotten accustomed to uh, gray fogs and doctrine in churches that expect nothing from the listeners. We want to entertain, we want to give some vague truths from the vague truths or statements consisting of a mixture of Scripture, science, and humanistic thinking that we call therapy or uh, moralistic therapeutic deism today and and we want to go away from church having felt good but never really being having dealt with anything we hear a couple stories we hear a verse and we walk away completely unchanged and we think wow that was a great experience in church and jude says no that's not experience at all you've missed it if that's it because we're contending for the faith he's going to use another phrase here in a few moments in, in context here that tells us that he is specifically talking about a very specific aspect of faith. 
a very specific part of it. A.W. Tozer was quoted once uh, in one of the meetings of the early church here in America in 1879. Uh, he said this, One evidence is that an increasing numbers of people around us are becoming ashamed to be found unequivocally on the side of truth. They say they believe, but their beliefs have been so diluted as to be impossible of clear definition. Moral power has always accompanied definite beliefs. Great saints have always been dogmatic. We need to return to the gentle dogmatism that smiles while it stands stubbornly in firm opposition of anything not the word of God, because the word of God lives and abides forever. In A.W. Tozer's time, he was fighting other teaching, other teachings that were not necessarily biblical. Moral power has always been accompanied by definite beliefs. If you really believe in something, you'll stand up for it. You'll fight for it. If I accused you this morning of speeding on your way to church, and you weren't speeding, and I kept arguing that you did speed, would you finally capitulate me and say, okay, I sped? Most of you would not, because you're going to stand on what? Truth. And what's the truth? I wasn't speeding coming to church this morning. If I was speeding, law enforcement would have told me I was. And some of you probably just got away with it. And some of you wouldn't argue with me because you know you're guilty of speeding going to church. But whether you call it speeding or not, if you're going faster than the speed limit, what is the truth? You're speeding. Whether you got caught or not, it's a different story, right? Now, if I accused you of being a speeder when you weren't speeding, how many of you would take the charge? None of us. Why? Because the truth matters. Doctrine matters. Principles matter. And Judah saying this, as Christians have common salvation, I was going to write to you concerning that common salvation, but I'm not going to do it because I need to write to you on something far greater right now, and that is this. We all need to stand up for what truth is because truth is being taken advantage of. Truth is being thwarted. It's being perverted. So he says in verse 4 then that he's concerned about their personal conversions. He's concerned about their conversions, but he, he does it in a way that he wants to make sure their conversions are true. He says, I'm worried about the true conversions in the church because in the church there are some conversions that are not, what? True. Notice what he says right at the beginning of verse 4 in Jude here. He says this, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were destined for what? The condemnation. Where is their destiny? Hell. And where are they? They're in the church. They're in your midst. They've crept in unnoticed. There are false teachers who are not part of salvation, who are not going into heaven, that are crept into the church, and they're teaching their version of truth instead of God's version of truth. And he says, I'm writing to you to make sure that your conversion is true. Because there are some conversions in the church that are not true. The point is that all error is a clear and present danger to the church. 
He says they've crept in unaware. These men seem to have all the right credentials, the right personality, the right people skills, and therefore they're well accepted in the church. But the problem is they're not part of it. This is why at the communion we, we talk the way that we do. Let a man examine himself and so let him eat. A relationship with Jesus Christ is between you and him, not you, me, and him. Now, there should be people in your life speaking truth into your life. There should be people that come alongside and disciple you, and you should be coming alongside others and discipling others. But I guarantee you this, you can't talk about and you won't live what you don't have. You can't talk about and live what you don't have. The problem is there's some people in the world who don't have it, but they're able to talk. But the problem is, in the end, it falls short. In the end, it will fall apart. And that's what Jude's going to tell us. They're going to end up like a tree twice dead. You ever see a tree that doesn't produce fruit? What is that tree? It's dead. So then the owner of the tree comes up to the tree and rips the tree out of the ground. Now what is it? Now it's dead, dead. Jude's going to tell us here in just a few verses that these teachers who crept in unawares are dead spiritually because they have no fruit. They sound good, they look good, but they have no fruit. And they're not just dead fruit-wise, but they're dead spiritually as well. They're twice dead. They're not even rooted in truth. So while they might be able to talk the talk, they can't walk the walk. They're not going to be able to, to consistently move forward for Jesus Christ. There's a couple of verses here um, that I could share with you. Matthew 7 and verse 15, uh, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 4, 2 Peter chapter 2 verses 1 through 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 16 verse 13. All of them talk about people who have snuck into the church, people who look good on the outside, but the inside, they're far from Jesus Christ. And where to mark and where to notice these people. The result of their covert operations is that the church wanes in genuine fellowship, worship, ministry, and evangelism slowly, slowly and almost unnoticeably stops. This is where many churches are today. The drift has been so slow they don't even realize it until they're gone or they die. It's shocking to us that churches are dying on a regular basis in the United States of America today. But I wonder how many of the churches are actually doing what the Word of God calls them to do. I wonder how many of us are taking the warning of Jude and, and saying, okay, we need to contend for truth. We need to defend truth. We need to take a stand for truth. We need to share truth with those around us. Not in browbeating them, but just in actual care and compassion for their eternal soul. Not only should we make sure that our teachers are orthodox, and that our churches are doing right, we must notice the trends and tendencies in the church as a whole and be willing to confront and challenge the trends that are harmful. Apathy is harmful to the church. Stagnant, being stagnant is harmful to the church. We are to be in the world but not like the world. We're to be outside the walls of our church but inside the walls for worship. God wants us to intentionally go into all the world and preach, herald, proclaim the gospel. How many of us have seen churches that wane in worship, ministry, evangelism, and slowly and almost unnoticeably die in the process? 
we're seeing in our own time. We have churches looking for pastors and men that don't want to go into ministry today. Because ministry's hard. Ministry's tough. Legacy churches are some of the last churches pastors want to go to. Today it's easier to start a church than it is to be a pastor and walk into one that already exists. Try changing it. Where are the churches at though? They're dying and they don't even know it. Then a pastor tries to come in and change something. And woo! Maybe then it's on. Pastors last 18 months in the average church today. Church hopping, one church to the next. Could it be that churches have gotten to the place where we just want teachers that tell us what we want to hear? They don't tell us that we don't want the truth. <laughs> it reminds me of the Tom Cruise movie. You can't handle the truth. You know what? We have churches today that can't handle the truth. Churches in our own culture that won't take the truth. They rather believe a lie that's not even in the Bible than something expressly written in the Bible. Or they take the truth of the Bible and make it relative. Well, we like that part of the Bible, but we don't, we don't read that part of the Bible. You keep the whole law, yet you offend at one point, you're guilty of... Taking Christianity without making Jesus Christ your Lord is like submerging a submarine with a hatch open. It's certain death, and she ain't coming back. Bonhoeffer said this, Chief Grace is, preaching the, is the preaching of forgiveness without repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without a cross. Grace without Jesus Christ. The living and incarnate one. Bonhoeffer got it. Faith should cost us something. Outwardly, many men and women may fit into the church today, but inwardly is what counts. God doesn't look on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. In Sunday school, we talked about David today, and, and that was one of the things we observed is God doesn't look at the outward. If it was about outward, nobody would, would be able to make it, which leads me to our next point. Jude knew the lifestyles of these kind of people. He said, outwardly, many, many are going to look right, many are going to act right, many are going to do right. Look what he says. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who were long ago destined for condemnation. They're ungodly people. They pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny the only master of our Lord Jesus Christ. Kind of reminds me of passages like 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 5. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. These, are, these are, could even be people in the church today. These could be other pastors. These could be members of other churches. If they deny Jesus Christ, if they deny the godliness of Jesus Christ, if they deny godly lifestyles, the Bible says avoid such people. Not the only passage, Titus chapter 1 and verse 16, look at this. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for what? What's a good work? Anything God wants to use them for, they're unfit. A good work is what we do for God, right? 
How about Romans 6, 1 and 2? Check this out. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that God's grace may abound? The answer is what? No way. Let it not be said among you by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? <laughs> You're like, hey, I can show you. This isn't talking about the, the accidental sins that we commit. This is habitual rebellion against God. They're constantly working against God. And yet they say they're working for God. How about Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 29? Here's another passage. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains what? A sacrifice for sins. Interesting. But a fearful expectation of judgment and fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. That doesn't sound good. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? What do you think? Well, God loves everybody. We're all going to go to heaven. I mean, God's, God's, God's not going to judge us. He's not that way. He's a loving God. He's a charitable God. He's not going to send anybody to hell. What's the Bible say? These are detestable. They've trampled the Son of God under their foot. They proclaim the blood and the covenant by which He was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. Does that sound like somebody, does that sound like a dad that's happy with their kid? No. And look at the other passages we read. The Bible's very clear when it comes to people who proclaim to be in Christ, but they live differently. And this is a theme all throughout the Bible. We could, we could spend, honestly, hours reading scriptures about this. It's all over the place. Jude's pointing out to one more defining characteristic of the false teachers. He says, they're morality. They're immoral people. Again, it's not necessarily their theology that identifies them or their schooling or their association or the lifestyle. These men were ungodly, which means they're devoid of reverence and worship towards the Holy One. They have no genuine fear of God. They also really have no genuine love for God. How do we demonstrate that we love God? If you love me, keep my commandments. They have no genuine fear or love for God. They were hypocrites and phonies from the beginning. And worse yet, they've justified anything that was found out by chalking it up to grace or mercy. They're sinning presumptuously, saying the blood will cover it all. They were in their senseless, in a sense, denying or saying to Christ that his lordship over their lives means absolutely nothing and we can go out and live however we want. Or because we have some extra knowledge of God, we, we actually are more enlightened and you just are not smart enough to be like us. In the Bible times, that was known as Gnosticism. Those who were more enlightened than others, those who had a better understanding of Scripture than others, which gave them a freedom to go and do whatever they want. 
Now, does the Bible teach that we're free in Christ? Absolutely. Does the Bible tell us how we're free in Christ? You are free to go in the world and do whatever you want as long as it glorifies God and honors the Father. Is that fair? Absolutely. You are free to move about the country as long as it honors God and glorifies the Father. Now, are you free to do anything that dishonors God and dishonors the Father? No. But guess what false teachers do? That's exactly what they do. They have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. And from such, get away. Get away. Now, there's a lot of things in life that we have liberty in. There's a lot of areas of the Bible in which we are given liberty. And Jude's going to talk about them eventually. He'll get to them. But before he does, he really wants to define who these people are. And next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the four characteristics that the Bible gives us here in the book of Jude in verses 5 through 11. There's five characteristics of the ungodly that are really going to define who these people are. Because this morning you could argue with me, well, Pastor Joe, you're painting with a really broad brush and you're using verses in other contexts. And you know why? I don't have time. If you're willing to stay here for three hours, we can, we can mine her all out, I promise. But this morning, that's not my goal. My goal is to equip you as the saints to go back and study to show yourselves approved unto God. Workmen that need not to be ashamed, but rightly dividing the word of what? Truth. Able to rightly divide the word of truth. And I want you to be able to go back and I want you to be able to look at scripture and I want you to know these four things that are on the screen. I want you to know, number one, that you've been called to earnestly defend for truth. To earnestly contend for truth. To really push. To really make it a point. To stretch yourself like you're going to the finish line. Number two, I want you to know the real gospel and what the real truth is. Real truth is found where? In the church. Wrong answer. Okay? Real truth is not found in the church. Hopefully, a church has real truth to offer. But real truth is found where? It's right here, folks. Thy word is truth. Jesus knew what truth was. He said, I am the way, I am the, and I am the. So if you want the way, the truth, and life, it's right here. It's not in a church. It's not in a denomination. It's not in some people's thoughts or opinion. It's in the Word of God. And God's Word tells us that, right? It's so clear. So, defend the truth. What is truth? God's Word is truth. Defend, defend God's Word. Number two, know what God's Word says and, and earnestly support what God's Word says. Number three, make sure you're truly converted. Because there are people in the church today who think they're saved, think they're following Christ, but they don't even know who Christ is. If we believe in our heart and we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be what? That's it. It's not a prayer you prayed. It's not a thought process you, you, you had to do. It, it simply is this. Do you believe this is truth? Do you believe God is who he says he is? Do you believe he sent his son to die for you? Do you believe that he died on the cross, resurrected, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God for you this morning? And have you placed your faith in him? 
And in his work, not your works of righteousness, but his work of righteousness, which he's already done. Have you placed your faith in that work of righteousness for him to be your savior? The answer is yes. And you believe it in your heart. You confess it with your mouth. You're already saved. Prayer doesn't save you. I'll give you my next paycheck. You show me a prayer that saves. If it's in the Bible, it's truth, right? Now, how many people profess Christ through prayer? Let's be fair. Most of us in this auditorium probably go back to a time where you vocalized your faith in Christ in a prayer. How many would say that? Yeah, the majority. You know why? Out of the heart, one believes, and with the mouth, one what? Confesses. And in your prayer, what were you doing to God? You were confessing your sin and your faith. That's why we do it in prayer. It's not the prayer that saves us. It's the action by which we're doing behind the prayer. So if we simply recite a prayer to get us saved, what are you doing really? You're trying to do a work. You're trying to save yourself. Salvation is of God. It's of, it's of Jesus Christ. So make sure you're truly converted. And then the last one is this. Guard your lifestyle. Guard your lifestyle. We do what honors God and brings glory to God. What did Jesus Christ do with his life? He honored the Father, and he glorified the Father, right? God, you be glorified through me. He was always reflecting glory back to the Father. He was always about the Father's business. He was always doing what the Father willed. Look, God, not my will be done, but your will be done. In the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done on earth as it is in... So give us this day our daily bread. So we are free to do whatever we want as long as two things are true. It glorifies God and it brings honor to God. Isn't that awesome? By the way, that's the book of Galatians. That's the book of Galatians. You are free in Christ. And if you're free in Christ, then you can't help but do the things Christ wants you to do. And you know what you are? You're free to go do them. Go do them and allow the Holy Spirit to work through you, in you, both the do and the will of his good pleasure. Let it happen. But God doesn't look on the outward appearance because what's the outward appearance? It's just outward appearance. God knows what's actually what in your heart. Love the Lord your God with all your might, with all your soul, and with all your what? All your strength, all your heart. There it is. God wants you to love him. We love him because he, that's our motivation for service right there. The fact that God loved us enough while we were still a sinner, he sent his son to die for us so that he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the children of God. No greater love hath any man than this than he lay down his life for who? But false teachers are already creeping in. There's already others who are trying to subvert the truth of God's word and they're trying to substitute their own thoughts. You know, when a pastor says, I think what God really meant was be careful because God's word is clear what he wants. Now we might question a word here or there, how an English person translates it, but that's why I always take you back to the Greek because guess what? We can't argue. I wonder what that Greek word means. Koine Greek is dead. You know what that means? Words don't change. They're the same. They're, they're stuck. 
And what truth is, is still truth today. And what words mean in the Bible are what words still mean today in our time. And God did it with the, with the Hebrew text, the Masoretic text, and he did it with the Greek text as well. And when we take all the texts together, we talked about this the, in Jan, when we were uh, introducing our study of the Bible, we take all the texts together, all the Greek texts, Vaticanus, Alexandrian, Byzantine, put them all together, we have one half of one page of the Greek New Testament that's actually under any type of scrutiny. And in there, no doctrine is wavered. It's word order and spelling. And you know what? We can hold, in, we can hold this book in our hand today and say, you know what? We have the Word of God today. We have the Word of God. Preserved, inspired, and it's truth in every generation, at all time, in every place. Why? Because it's true. James says, contend for truth. Stand on the Word of God. Well, stand up for truth. Stand up for what is right. And if you do that, you'll be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. How many of us want to be good soldiers? Right? Hopefully, every believer in here wants to be found faithful when the Lord calls us home. So, here's the real question. What are you going to do in these areas this week? What are you going to do for Jesus Christ in these areas? Jude says, now earnestly contend. It's present tense. It's not future tense. Not what are you going to do for Jesus tomorrow. What are you going to do now when it comes to truth and contending for it, when it comes to the real gospel and knowing it, when it comes to really being converted and it comes to guarding your lifestyle? What are you going to do today, starting right now? What are you going to do for Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you that James is or Jude is in the Bible here, Father, the brother of James. And so many of the things that Jude says, we also find in the book of James. We find Peter in, in 2 Peter also writing about the very same things. And Lord, we know that as we get closer to the end times, that there's going to be more and more false teaching that creeps into the world. Lord, we see in our own government today, people lying, people substituting their version of the truth, or changing the facts to make it sound more palatable, for people to receive bad news. And Lord, we need to understand that the only reason the good news is good is that it's true, that it's right, that it's dependable. It doesn't change. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's good in every culture and every time with every people. And Lord, I pray that as this morning we were challenged by Jude to contend for the faith, that Father, we would be contenders of the faith, that we would be students of your word, able to rightly divide the word of truth. Father, we saw that there already are, even in the first generation church, people that were trying to teach a gospel other than the one that was received. And Lord, next week as we look at your text again, we're going to see that the faith is defined as uh, a very in a very specific way that we all know what the Bible's talking about. We all know what the truth is. The gospel that was once given for all, Jude says. So Father, help us to understand the gospel today. Help us understand that doctrine does matter. That the system of belief was there even in the first generation church. That doctrine is not something the modern church has come up with, but it's something that is taught in the very Bible, in the very scriptures that we hold in our hands today. And Father, help us to be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving our own selves. And Lord, I pray that we would make sure of our salvation today. I pray, Lord, that we would look at what we believe and why we believe it, that we be able to articulate what we believe and that we're able to share it with those who need to hear with meekness and fear. Father, we thank you for the freedom we have in our country this
this weekend to celebrate the freedom that we have as a nation. And Lord, we know those freedoms are under attack all the time. And just as a freedom is under attack today, so too is our freedom in Jesus Christ. And Lord, there are teachers that are teaching other gospels out there. And we need to, as a mouthpiece of you, share the hope that's within us with meekness and fear. So Father, help us to do that this week, starting today, starting with people we run into today, share the truth that's within us and disciple them into a relationship with you. In your name we pray, all God's people said. Music